Our text for the sermon this Lord's Day is found in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11. There we read, And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. We come to the conclusion of our present series in defending national covenanting and in defending in particular the descending obligation of the solemn league and covenant to all posterity, whether familial, ecclesiastical, or national. Today we will consider a concluding objection and some concluding questions. But first, let us turn to our text from the inspired pages of Holy Scripture. And our first main point is this. A most glorious time of worldwide national covenanting is coming to planet Earth. According to Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11, which we just read as our text. In order to better understand what the prophet is saying to us, let us first consider the historical context of this passage. The meaning of the name Zechariah is this. God remembers. God remembers. God remembers the covenant with his people. People may forget that covenant, may ignore and neglect that covenant, may despise and hate that covenant, but God always remembers the covenant made with his people and the covenant they have made with him. The meaning of Zechariah's name, God remembers, bears directly upon the theme that we find in the prophecy before us today, which should cause the heart of every Christian to leap for joy for the only reason that we are not destroyed for our many violations of covenant with God is because we have settled our case. We have settled our case upon the perfect covenant keeping of Jesus Christ rather than upon our own covenant keeping. In judicially forgiving us all our sin, when we trust alone in Christ, our only hope of eternal salvation, the Lord remembers the covenant keeping of Christ in fulfilling all righteousness for us and remembers not our many, many, covenant violations against us any longer. Zechariah begins this prophecy. God's people have been delivered from captivity by the decree of Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 and have returned to the land promised to them by God. The first building project initiated in Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. God's people, in doing so, made a great start in laying the foundation of the temple and building the brazen altar under the leadership of Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Joshua, the high priest. But soon, it seems as though, from the text of Scripture, they found their hearts pulled away from the primary work of building the kingdom of God to the secondary work 
of building their own kingdoms as they increasingly use their time and resources to focus primarily on building bigger and more comfortable homes. The house of God laid in ruins. The ordinances of the church were incomplete and the people of God fell into apathy and indifference about the kingdom of God. Some fell into apathy due to the small beginnings in laying the foundation of the temple that was once one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. Perhaps they said to themselves, why try to rebuild the temple when it will never look like the glorious temple that Solomon built? And many wept at the laying of the foundation of the temple as they remembered those who were old enough, remembered the glorious temple of Solomon, which had been destroyed 70 years before. Others fell into apathy because those who returned to Judah were ruled by the Persian kings who could stop the temple building project. And this did happen for a period of time just as easily stop it as Cyrus had commanded the temple to be built. Why try to rebuild the temple when we are ruled by a government that may snatch away in a moment all the labor we employ in seeking to rebuild the temple? Others fell into apathy because there were enemies like the Samaritans who had perverted the true worship of God and outnumbered the Israelites who sought to worship the Lord God in spirit and in truth. Perhaps those reasoned, why try to rebuild the temple when we are comparatively such a small remnant of people in comparison to all of our enemies around us? Others fell into apathy because the things of this world their own homes, their own kingdoms, their own dreams, their own desires for the things of this world were far greater than their love and desire for the faithful ordinances of God and the promotion of the kingdom of God and rebuilding the temple at that time. Why should we worry about rebuilding the temple at this time when we have so many other things on our mind. There will be plenty of time later to rebuild the temple when we have completed the projects at home that are taking so much of our time. The people of God said, according to Haggai 1-2, the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. You see, they said it was inconvenient, time-consuming, and required such sacrifice to rebuild the temple. It was not comfortable and there were so many obstacles to overcome. So they said, why try to rebuild the temple at this time? Let's wait until a better time when it's not so difficult. The excuses offered by God's covenant people at the time of Zechariah sound all too familiar to our present day and age and sadly in our own cases so often in excuses we make in our own lives for not taking the steps we ought to be taking in rebuilding the temple and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that has fallen into such a state of disrepair that the ordinances of Christ are few and are not administered purely by so many. And the faithful ministers who will stand for the truth of Christ before friend or foe are so few. Dear ones, let us not be like those who made excuses as to why the rebuilding of God's church 
could not move forward. But rather let us put away all excuses and press forward in this day of small beginnings, knowing that it is, quote, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4 6. Dear ones, this is the historical situation in which Zechariah is called to prophesy that God remembers his covenant with his people and that none of the excuses the people have raised have merit in light of the covenant obligations that they owe to the Lord who has redeemed them and in light of the covenant faithfulness of God to save them and deliver them from all their enemies. Through the faithful preaching and prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, two contemporary prophets in Judah at this time, according to Ezra 5.1, and through the faithful service of the magistrate Zerubbabel, and through the faithful ministry of the high priest Joshua, the Lord caused his people to cast aside all of their vain excuses for why they could not devote themselves to promote and to rebuild his kingdom and cause them rather to renew their national covenant with the Lord on two different occasions, as we see in Ezra 10.3 and Nehemiah 9.38. As a result, the temple was rebuilt. As a result of this faithful prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, the faithful ministry of the magistrates of Zerubbabel and the faithful ministry of Joshua the high priest, the temple was rebuilt and completed with great rejoicing and praise to God for His faithfulness to them in remembering His covenant. As we see in Ezra chapter 6, verses 14 through 15 and verses 20 through 21. We now come to consider in our text the national covenant of Israel. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10, in 11b, and in verse 12. Notice these words. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. Skipping down to 11b. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land, and shall choose again, or choose Jerusalem again. In order to encourage the returned captives, the Lord reminds his people Israel that there is coming a time of much greater rejoicing in the future for Israel in which the blessings of the Lord will extend to them to such a far greater degree than are presently at that time of Zechariah being extended to his people Israel. The time of rejoicing that occurred when the temple was rebuilt in the time of Zechariah will be only a foretaste of the much greater rejoicing that shall be theirs when God will supernaturally draw many Gentile nations into covenant with himself. For this time of future unparalleled blessing promised to Israel will occur according to Zechariah 2.11 in that day. That future time of blessing to Israel will occur in that day. In what day? In that day when many nations shall be joined to the Lord and shall be my people, declares Jehovah God. In that day, Israel will be brought back into covenant with the Lord. In that day when the many nations are brought into covenant with the Lord, at that time, Israel will also be restored to covenant blessing with the Lord. 
Now we're going to look more closely at the Gentile nations and the covenant with the Lord uh, that is made at that time in just a moment. But understand at this point that, that Zechariah has moved forward in prophetic time to a future day of great spiritual blessing to come upon Israel as Jehovah will again remember his covenant with his people and draw them unto himself even after they have rejected him, even after they have hated him, even after they have uh, cursed God's only begotten son, even after thousands of years in rejecting God's covenant, God remembers his covenant with them. In Romans 11.27, which in a uh, few weeks I want to pursue by way of application of uh, the Solemn League and Covenant to prophetic scriptures, Romans 11.27 says this about the covenant blessing that will be poured upon Israel. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. And not simply the sins of an individual here and there out of Israel, but when I will take away the sins of the, the nation of Israel, the vast majority of the nation of Israel, when I take away their sins and they are pardoned and they are restored and they fall upon the shoulder of the Lord Jesus Christ weeping, pouring, being mourning and grieving over how they have hated and despised the Lord Jesus Christ. This period of time of God's unparalleled blessing upon Israel to which Zechariah prophetically points has not yet occurred for we have never witnessed both Israel as a nation in covenantal union with Jehovah at the same time that many nations are joined by way of national covenants to the Lord to become God's people. We still await that time. Thus the time in which these prophecies are to be fulfilled yet await us in that glorious millennial period of time of worldwide reformation as Christ reigns from heaven and pours out his spirit upon the nations of this world to a degree that we have not yet witnessed. The presence of the Lord in coming and dwelling in the midst of Israel that is mentioned here in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, where it says that the Jehovah says that he will come and he will dwell in their midst. That language does not refer to the bodily coming of Christ to the earth during the future millennial period any more than the Lord's presence in coming and walking in the midst of Israel at the time of Moses referred to the bodily coming of Jehovah. As we read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 24. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. That wasn't a bodily coming when God says, I will come unto thee. I will come spiritually. I will come in blessing, in covenantal love, covenantally come, spiritually come, come through my messengers, come to thee through my ordinances, come to thee through my word. I will come unto thee and bless thee. For all of God's ordinances are indeed the face of God to us. They are God's presence to us and with us when God's ordinances are faithfully administered unto us. Likewise, we read in Leviticus chapter 26, 
verses 11 through 12. Leviticus 26. Similar language. God speaking, And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. Again, God coming, walking in their midst is not a bodily walking. Likewise, God comes to his New Testament temple to his New Testament church and dwells in their midst, not bodily, but spiritually and covenantally. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God comes to us. His New Testament temple and church. He walks in our midst. Not in some pretended or feigned way. In a very true sense, God walks in our midst. In fact, we find in Revelation... Chapter 2, verse 1, that the glorified, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ says to the church there that he is the one who walks in the midst of the seven candlesticks, which are representative of the seven churches of Asia, which represent the church visible, universal. This prophecy in Zechariah chapter 2, dear ones, foretells the covenant renewal of Israel with her God, as is clear from verse 12, where clear covenantal language is used. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion, in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. That's covenantal language. He will again choose them. He will again inherit them. That is what it says in Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah 19, verses 24 and 25, where God calls Israel his inheritance. And he will inherit them. And he will choose them again in covenant to be his people. Well, let us move from the national covenant of Israel now in our text to the national covenant of many Gentile nations in Zechariah 2, 11a, where we read, And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. We have considered briefly the prophesied time of covenant blessings to be brought upon Israel. Now let us consider the prophesied time of covenant blessings to be brought upon Gentile nations. Note carefully here what we find likewise in Romans chapter 11 and many other places in Scripture. That when Israel as a nation is recalled to her covenant with God, likewise many Gentile nations will be brought into national covenants with God. For example, turn with me to Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 27. Notice the relationship between the Gentile nations and Israel there. Romans 11, verses 25 through 27. The Apostle Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. The word Gentiles there 
can either refer to many Gentiles as individuals or it can refer to the nations because the same word is translated in various places in the scripture as either Gentiles or as nations in our English text. It's obviously the context that's going to help us to understand when we're talking about just Gentiles as individuals or as nations. But based upon the many Old Testament prophecies, I submit to you here that we're not simply talking about a Gentile here and a Gentile there uh, from various nations. We're talking about Gentile nations. Until the fullness of the Gentiles or the Gentile nations become in. And so, all Israel as a nation... That's why I go back to the you know, saying again that this is talking about Gentile nations and not simply individuals, but Gentile nations because what is it parallel to? Israel, not simply as individuals, but Israel as a nation being brought back to God. Until the fullness of the Gentiles or the Gentile nations become in and so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. And likewise we see the relationship between Israel and the Gentile nations. Israel is a nation and the Gentile nations coming in covenant to the Lord at approximately the same time in Isaiah 19, verses 24 through 25, where there we see Israel, Egypt, and Assyria covenanted with the Lord. Notice... Secondly, the covenantal language used in regard to the Gentile nations by Zechariah in Zechariah 2.11. Notice the covenantal language. First of all, this phrase. Shall be joined to the Lord. How is an entire nation and its national representatives joined to the Lord? Not merely as individuals. A Gentile nation is joined to the Lord in the same way that Israel as a nation is joined to the Lord by way of a national covenant. God has left left us uh, certainly not in the dark here that joined to the Lord means to be in covenant with Him. When we turn to Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 5, we find the exact same word, joined, the phrase joined to the Lord, used with regard to Israel as a nation. There we read, begin with verse 4, In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, and they and the children of Judah together. So here we have what was the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they shall come, both of those kingdoms, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping, they shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. That's clearly referring to a national covenanting. It's not simply talking to a few individuals out of Israel and a few individuals out of Judah. This is talking about the former kingdoms of Judah and Israel coming together, uniting together as one nation joining themselves to the Lord in covenant, in a national covenant. If for Israel and Judah to be joined to the Lord in a national covenant is to be joined in a perpetual and everlasting national covenant, 
to the God of their salvation, then likewise, dear ones, for the many nations here mentioned in Zechariah 2.11 that are said to be joined to the Lord in that day, it is for them to be joined in a perpetual and everlasting national covenant to the God of their salvation. Notice this second phrase, covenantal language that's used in Zechariah 2.11, shall be my people. There is not a more clear expression of covenantal union between God and a people than this language where we find it used so often of God's covenantal relationship with Israel. Again, in just to demonstrate one passage that uses this language and many, many could be added to it, but Leviticus chapter 26, verses 9 through 12, we read, and God speaking to Israel, as a nation, for I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. And ye shall eat old store and bring forth the old because of the new. And I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and ye shall be my people." And yet, that same covenantal language that is used of Israel as a nation is used here with regard to the Gentile nations by way of national covenants. You can also look to Isaiah 19.25 where Egypt as a nation will covenant with God and God shall say of Egypt as a nation at that future time, Blessed be Egypt, my people, my covenant people. Wherever we find that language, my people, you can insert the little word covenant between my and people so as to understand more clearly what's being said. My covenant people. Finally, observe that in that millennial worldwide reformation, a national covenant shall not only exist between God and Israel or only between God and Egypt, but rather will exist between God and, according to Zechariah 2.11, Not one nation, but many nations. Furthermore, we find in Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, it uses even more extensive language to communicate how extensively this is when it says, All nations will come and worship before me. All nations. Not just, not a lot of people from a nation here and there, but all nations as national entities will come and worship before me, the Lord says. And we find in Psalm 72, verses 8 through 14, and again, there are so many passages of Scripture that would follow this theme that I'm only giving just two or three to make the point. Psalm 72, verses 8 through 14, we find these words, He that is Christ shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him All nations shall serve him, for he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. That doesn't refer to the eternal state after the second coming of Christ, where Christ will have dominion from sea to sea, where all kings and all nations will serve him. It's not the eternal state after the second coming of Christ, after the general resurrection, because what you have during this period of time 
is Christ as a righteous king delivering the needy. There are needy people during this period of time that need Christ to deliver them. There are people who cry out unto him because they're poor and have no helper. There are the poor. There are those who suffer violence, but yet their blood will be counted precious in his sight. That goes on during this period of time. That doesn't happen in the eternal state. Dear ones, we have the exciting prospect that what we presently see by way of much covenant breaking in this nation and in England, Ireland, and Scotland, and Canada, and other covenanted nations, the covenant breaking that we see in these nations will be turned by God's grace by the almighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those nations so that they will own again the solemnly and covenant of their forefathers. Just as God gave this prophecy of national covenant renewal to Israel of old in Zechariah 2 in order to encourage them to rebuild the church that had fallen into disrepair. So the Lord encourages us today by this prophecy of national covenant renewal among the Gentile nations, which is to come, which is yet to come, in order to encourage us to work in faith and hope and rebuilding the church that has fallen, casting aside all our excuses that we might use to delay the work of building God's kingdom, beginning in our own families, in times of family worship and the way we order our families and teach our families and instruct and discipline, and also in times of corporate worship with God's people as well. That time is coming. We anxiously await it. May God grant that our eyes or the eyes of our children may actually witness it. Now, one objection. One objection and then a couple questions as we conclude our series. One objection and is this. There are no Reformed Church courts in the United States that have owned the Solemn League and Covenant as our covenant or considered the descending obligations of that covenant to be binding upon the church in the United States, upon individuals in the United States, or upon uh, the uh, nation of the United States, thereby showing... So the objection goes, thereby showing that the Solemn League and Covenant was viewed merely as an example to be followed in covenanting, but not a covenant that by way of descending obligation bound families, church, or nation in the United States. Well, let's consider what both church courts in the United States and ministers in the United States have said about the Solemn League and Covenant being our covenant and binding the posterity in the United States. Again, many, many quotes could be cited, but in the interest of time, I've just selected very, very few. First, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, or the RPCNA. In 1807, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, that is the RPCNA, adopted as a term of communion the following testimony to that church's belief in the descending obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant to those in the United States. They, in their fourth term of communion, it states this, and that the obligation of these covenants included in that is the Solemn League and Covenant extends to those who were represented in the taking of them, although removed to this, meaning the United States, or any other part of the world, 
insofar as they bind to duties not peculiar to the church in the British Isles, but applicable in all lands. Applying all those moral principles that the church ought to be applying in all lands. Those those aspects of the Solemn League and Covenant that deal with the moral principles, for example, to extirpate heresy, schism, division, popery, prelacy, uh, sectarianism, denominationalism, all of these things that speak in the Solemn League and Covenant. That is a covenant that does aspects of the Solemn League and Covenant that continue to bind the churches here in the United States as well. In 1839, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, the RPCNA, published a document in overture to the church uh, at large, uh, the RPCNA at large, entitled Testimony for Public Covenanting, in which the descending obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant to them in the United States is stated in these words. It's a little longer quote. In that document it states, The Solemn League and Covenant was one vow in which the members of the church and citizens of the state were bound inseparably, though distinctly, and whom any principle of the covenant binds, the whole binds, because it cannot be divided. What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. As God is one party, the covenanter who emigrates is after immigration still within the dominions of him who is the king of kings and lord of lords. Those who have come into the United States since the taking of the covenants are as really under the kingly authority of Christ as they were in Great Britain, for he is the lord of the whole earth. The colonies at the time of entering into the Solemn League and Covenant were an integral part of the British nation. They held their lands under the crown and were governed by the deputies of the throne whom they acknowledged as their governors. The old Congress of 1774, that is uh, the Continental Congress of 1774, solemnly claimed for themselves and for the people of the colonies whom they represented, quote, all the rights and immunities of British citizens, end of quote. The most excellent part of their birthright and immunities was that they inherited a title to the covenant blessings of their ancestors who entered into federal relations with the God of Israel. It may be said in reply to this that they did not intend to claim the covenant birthright. It is admitted that they did not, and that in doing so they committed a great sin. Men often do things when they do not understand their own transactions. As the Assyrian king fulfilled the counsel of the Lord, although, quote, he meant not so, nor did his heart think so, end of quote. Isaiah 10.7. A second ecclesiastical body, the Associate Synod of North America, also known as Associate Presbyterians, likewise testified of the descending obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant to them in the United States in the document entitled A Display of the Religious Principles of the Associate Synod of North America, revised in 1813, page 223, where they say very clearly, talking about the engagements to the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, they say very clearly, so we acknowledge these engagements still binding upon us. The Solemn League and Covenant to be still binding upon us. Speaking as a church of Jesus Christ. And a third ecclesiastical body, the Reformed Presbytery in the United States likewise testified of the descending obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant to them in the United States. In a document written by the Reformed Presbytery in 1879 entitled The Short Vindication of Our Covenanted Reformation, we read these words. Also, our covenants 
not their covenants, those of Britain, not their covenants, but our covenants, National and Solemn League, may and ought to be renewed, not that they have become old, as many say, but that they are to be owned as obligatory upon us, and a sense of their permanent obligation deepened upon our own souls and exhibited to others by the solemnity of an oath. Likewise, in the minutes of the Reformed Presbytery, June the 1st, 1887, when they dealing with their covenant renewal of the, of the Solemn League and Covenant, we read in their minutes this, And finally, we can never be sufficiently thankful to God for permitting and honoring us as a presbytery, unitedly and publicly, with our hands lifted toward heaven, to pledge a new adherence to our covenants, National and Solemn League, at North Union, Butler County, Pennsylvania, 1881. Having answered or dealt with that objection now, in closing, two questions. First question. Do civil rulers have the lawful authority to bind people to extra-biblical practices that are not inherently unlawful? Let me say this. First of all, lawful covenants may include matters that are not explicitly mentioned in the Scripture. You may not be able to find word for word something that may be included in a lawful covenant. You may not find it in the Scripture, just mentioned explicitly. Such as the binding national covenant between the Gibeonites and the Israelites in Joshua 9. And between the, uh, the brotherly national covenant between Tyre and Israel in Amos 1 9. However, such, number two, uh, such a covenant must be agreeable to the Word of God. The terms of it must be agreeable to the Word of God. When we say extra biblical, we do not mean anti biblical, against Scripture. It must be agreeable to the Word of God, even. If it is not word for word found in the scriptures, it must be agreeable and founded upon the principles that are found that we find in the scripture. All such extra biblical terms in a lawful national covenant must also promote the moral good as again agreeable to the word of God. That's how we define moral good is by what God's word says, but it must promote the moral good of the church and nation and not the moral decline and falling away of the church or nation from God. Thirdly, such a national covenant must not deal in matters trivial, wherein the matter of a covenant simply becomes the arbitrary will of the state or of the church to impose something by sheer authority like jump a hundred times because I'm the state or I'm the church and I tell you to do so. Uh, jump two inches off the ground because I said one inch is not enough. Jumping is not forbidden in the word of God. It's extra biblical, but it's trivial and it does not promote the moral good of the people. To this effect, Samuel Rutherford comments in regard to the church and to the state. Listen closely to his words here. And this is found in his book, uh, The Divine Right of Church Government and Excommunication, page 648. No wise man would say that the church might make a law that all people should cast stones in the water. For what actions hath no good, nor lawfulness, nor aptitude to edify in themselves, these the mere will of man can never make good, lawful, and apt to edify, because only God, whose will is the prime rule of all goodness, can create moral goodness in actions. Hence it follows that all actions and circumstances of their nature indifferent 
must lose that indifferency and receive from God some goodness and aptness to edify before they can be the reasonable and nearest matter of any civil or ecclesiastical constitution. Because what rulers can in law and reason command, that they must will as good and apt to edify before they can bind others to will it. For a thing indifferent as it is such is neither good nor evil. And the object of the will is always to be good, not indifferent, but to be good. Rulers commands, rulers commands as God's, rulers command as God's ministers for our good, Rutherford says, Romans 13.4, for our good. The second question. Is a covenant still binding upon the moral person that has in it not only that which is lawful, but also that which is unlawful? If we view the covenant as a whole, then we cannot keep a covenant that has in it that which is unlawful and contrary to the word of God. That would be to break the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain because to swear to anything false in God's name is an unlawful covenant because God is a God of truth. There is no error in sin in him. However, if we view the lawful part of the covenant that we have taken, perhaps having come to realize subsequently, after we took the covenant, having come to realize subsequently that other parts of the covenant we took were unlawful, so we do not cast away that which is lawful in such a case. We don't want to cast away that which is lawful in such a case. It would be better, I would submit, to restructure the covenant we took by disavowing that which was unlawful and only including in it that which is lawful rather than to begin to disregard and discard covenanted and lawful duties altogether. To simply disregard a covenant because we come to learn one term and the whole covenant was wrong would likely take us down a path to looking for something wrong in every covenant, knowing the tendency of man. That is wrong in every covenant or in a covenant that we do not want to keep. And so we simply disregard the whole covenant because we found something that's not exactly perfect, not exactly the way it should be worded, and we begin to chuck covenants with God. There's a real danger of abuse in this particular area. It seems to me, therefore, that a much better approach to honoring covenants, honoring God, would be that we, if we took a covenant in sincerity and yet in ignorance of some revealed truth, that we not simply disregard that which was true in the covenant, but that we regard afresh and anew only that which is true and disregard and disavow that which was false. That brings us, dear ones, to the end of this series. May we pray for, teach our families, and promote in every way we can within our spheres of influence the blessed and glorious covenant of reformation that Christ is going to bring to this world built squarely upon the foundation of the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. And as we do so, let us seek in our own individual lives, in our families and in our churches and societies, to remind ourselves that we are indeed joined to the Lord in covenant. We are a covenant people and a covenant nation. And just as we who are parents pray for our covenant children, that the spiritual promises of the covenant made to us and to our children may be realized by faith alone and through God's grace alone, even when our children rebel and stray from the truth. So we pray likewise for this rebellious covenanted nation in which we live. Though this nation has rebelled against the covenant, forgotten the covenant of God, trampled underfoot the covenant of God, that God 
who remembers his covenant, Zechariah, the God who remembers his covenant, would raise up his mighty arm and restore this nation and the nations of this world to covenant faithfulness with him. Amen. Let us stand together in prayer at this time. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee and praise Thee for Thy tender mercies, for Thy covenant faithfulness. Lord, we thank Thee that our account is settled in Christ, our covenant keeper. We thank Thee that He has fulfilled all righteousness in His obedience to the law of God and in His suffering, the curse which we deserved. We praise Thee, our God, for Thy blessed Spirit who applies this glorious redemption into our lives, who sanctifies us, who opens our eyes to see what our covenanted duties are, that God has initiated covenant with us and our glorious privilege is to respond by covenanting with Him as individuals uh, in, the, in our baptisms in personal covenants that we make with Thee, in church covenants, as well as, Lord, in the solemn league and covenant of our forefathers. We pray, our Lord and our God, forgive us, cleanse us, renew us, our Lord, to walk in faithfulness before Thee, and pour forth Thy mighty Spirit upon us. For, Lord, we are... Uh, like a bunch of uh, dirt, clay. We are, Lord, uh, uh, unformed and Thou dost not form us. We are like dead corpses unless Thou dost speak into the dry bones to come together as one mighty army. We pray our God, speak therefore that resurrection word unto the nations and unto thy ancient people Israel. We ask, Lord, that thou would hear us through the power, the majesty, the glory, the grace, the justice of Jesus Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-6-L-3-T-5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.